You are listening to community-supported radio, KVMR-FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. Today is Friday, February 26th, 2021. I'm Joyce Miller, and this is the KVMR Evening News. Right after the latest NPR News headlines, we'll have the California Report from KQED Public Radio, followed by a roundup of regional weekend weather and local news. Then, Paul Emery talks to economist Gary Zimmerman about Fed policy, pandemic-related job loss, and prospects for the U.S. economic recovery. And we end the newscast with commentary from Chaplain Norris Burks about the role of spirituality in everyday life. For their generous support of KVMR, we thank Sweetland Garden Mercantile, celebrating 2021 with Dave Wilson and Felix Gillet bare root trees in stock, plus berries, grapes, cloning supplies, and more in downtown North San Juan. 292-9000, sweetlandgm.com. Dig it. And Dignity Health, Sierra Nevada Memorial Hospital, delivering cardiovascular care and wellness with a team of specialists dedicated to prevention education, from diagnosis to treatment and rehabilitation. More information online at dignityhealth.org slash Sierra Nevada. Here are the latest headlines from National Public Radio. Live from NPR News, I'm Janine Herbst. President Biden visited Texas today with a message. The federal government is here to help. He met with first responders and local leaders following the winter storms that crippled the Texas-only power grid and water supplies all over the state. As NPR's Tamara Keith reports, Biden also visited a mass vaccination site. Biden used this trip to hit a theme that he's made central to his presidency. He's not going to let politics get in the way of working with governors and local leaders, regardless of party. For Texas right now, that means sending federal help in the aftermath of the winter storms. We're not here today as Democrats or Republicans. We're here today as Americans. The American leaders with responsibility, all of us here in this parking lot, responsibility to all the people we serve. The same goes for the coronavirus. The federally supported mass vaccination site Biden visited in Houston can currently serve 6,000 people a day. Tamara Keith, NPR News, traveling with the president. The White House today released a two-page declassified intelligence report saying that the Saudi crown prince is responsible for the death of U.S.-based journalist Jamal Khashoggi. A director of national intelligence, Avril Haines, spoke to NPR's All Things Considered. The fact that the crown prince approved that operation and, you know, or that we rather have assessed that is also likely not to be a surprise. And, you know, I am sure it is not going to make things easier, but I think it's also fair to say that it is not unexpected. The Saudis deny the report's findings. They claim the royal critic who wrote for The Washington Post was killed by rogue operatives. A panel of experts has recommended that the Food and Drug Administration authorize drug maker Johnson & Johnson's one-shot COVID-19 vaccine for emergency use in adults. The FDA normally follows the advice of its expert advisors, and a quick decision is expected because of the pandemic. If approved, it will be the third vaccine in use in the United States. 
A United Nations program to speed vaccines to underserved countries is getting a boost from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. NPR's Tom Jelton says the Mormon charity reports it's providing $20 million to the UN's Children's Fund. The UN Children's Fund, UNICEF, is leading an effort to supply 2 billion COVID-19 doses to participating countries by the end of this year. Latter-day Saints Charities, an arm of the Utah-based Mormon Church, last year gave UNICEF $3 million to support its other COVID-19 relief efforts. UNICEF's executive director, Henrietta Four says the $20 million LDS gift is the single biggest donation UNICEF has received from a private sector partner in support of its vaccination programs. Tom Jelton, NPR News. This is NPR News. Security agencies are searching for the gunman who kidnapped more than 300 girls from a boarding school in northwestern Nigeria earlier today. Ishma Fundikwa reports it's the latest in a series of mass kidnappings of children. This latest incident in Zamfara State is the second such kidnapping in a little over a week in the region. At least 42 people kidnapped earlier this month are still to be released. Northern Nigeria is a hotbed of armed activity spearheaded by Islamist jihadists. The 2014 kidnapping of 276 girls by Boko Haram at Chibok sparked outrage and some of the girls are still missing. No group has claimed responsibility for the latest kidnapping, but analysts say criminal gangs use it for ransom money. For NPR News, I am Ish Mafundikwa in Harare. ByteDance, TikTok's parent company, will pay $92 million to settle a class action lawsuit against the video sharing app that collected data without users' permission. That violates an Illinois privacy law. Last year, Facebook agreed to a $550 million settlement under the same law. Facebook is a financial supporter of NPR. Virgin Galactic says it's postponing its next space mission until May at the earliest after a December test flight was aborted because of a computer malfunction. The company reportedly found electromagnetic interference caused the computer to reboot. Virgin says it will test new components before the next flight. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. In a unanimous ruling, the California Supreme Court has upheld a 2018 state law barring suspects under the age of 16 from being tried as adults. Advocates of criminal justice reform hailed the ruling as a major victory and a rebuke to a get-tough approach to fighting crime that they say emphasized punishment over the rehabilitation of young offenders. Many prosecutors opposed the 2018 California law and supported challenges to it, arguing some crimes committed by 14 and 15 year olds are so heinous they deserve being tried as adults. Fewer than 50 minors were reportedly tried as adults last year in California. About 90% of youth prosecuted in the country are Latino, Black or Native American. In health, psychiatric experts are warning Bay Area obstetricians to be on the lookout for higher rates of postpartum psychosis. They believe the condition, characterized by paranoia and confusion, is being exacerbated by the pandemic. KQED's health correspondent April Domboski reports. 
In a normal year, Dr. Jessica Coker sees two or three cases of postpartum psychosis. Then last month, she saw four cases in a row. And I was like, this is strange because it is such a rare disorder. When she looked closer at the data for her hospital in Arkansas, it turns out they had 10 cases during the pandemic, more than triple the normal rate. But she hadn't noticed because the cases were spread out over the year. She says other doctors should review their data, too. I can't imagine it's only happening here. The condition is often triggered by stress, and Coker says during the pandemic, new moms have had plenty of that. They've been so isolated and had so little help. Their families wouldn't come to their house because of COVID, and they didn't want people coming to their house because of COVID. At El Camino Hospital in San Jose, Dr. Nirmaljeet Dami has seen a spike in postpartum depression and anxiety. But she believes the full tidal wave has yet to hit because women are putting off care and most screening is being done through computer visits. They don't capture the final nuances of a mental health presentation. They don't, you know, generate the same level of trust and openness that an in-person visit does. With increased vaccinations, Dami hopes obstetricians will soon go back to in-person checkups so they can catch postpartum mental illness early. For the California Report, I'm April Dimbosky. And a big change of topic here. Horse racing on California tracks has continued through the pandemic without live spectators. But as Cap Radio's Scott Rod reports, people are still placing their wagers. Betting windows at California horse tracks remained closed for much of last year, but people are still betting on races. Fans wagered $2.9 billion in the 2018-2019 season and $2.8 billion last season. And that can all be explained by folks sitting on their couch wagering on horse races. Scott Cheney is executive director of the California Horse Racing Board. He says remote betting on horses boomed during the pandemic. There has been a trend away from brick-and-mortar satellite on-track attendance, but COVID has just massively accelerated that. The vast majority of bets, nearly 80 percent, were placed remotely and often out of state. Cheney says he's encouraged by the sustained level of interest in the sport, but says racetracks will likely see less revenue as remote betting continues to grow. For the California Report, I'm Scott Rod in Sacramento. And on to another sport. Opening day for Major League Baseball is still a little more than a month away. And as coronavirus cases continue to decline, one San Diego County supervisor is hoping fans will be able to attend the opener in that city's Petco Park. Supervisor Jim Desmond has written a letter to Governor Newsom asking the governor to allow 25% capacity for opening day on April 1st. The supervisor explained why in this message he posted on his YouTube page. Padres had a great season last year. You know, they're winning, winning again, and, and they, we'd love to see them, you know, on opening day have fans in the stands. This has already happened throughout the country in different areas, NCAA games, some NFL games, even the Super Bowl had fans in the stands. Supervisor Desmond says San Diego's ballpark would implement safety measures like other sporting venues have done, including wearing masks and spaced seating. According to current state guidelines for reopening, live sporting events with fans in attendance are one of the last things that are expected to resume. Support for the California Report comes from Personal Capital, offering professional-grade financial tools and objective advice from a fiduciary, personalcapital.com. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Ocean Institute, working to advance the frontiers of ocean research, sharing the connection between life on land and life at sea with everyone, everywhere. 
and the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at Irvine.org. And now to a preview of our sister show, The California Report's Weekly Magazine. This week, letters between best friends who met in prison. My hope is that today your joy doesn't feel contained by the walls that surround you or the judgments of those who don't know you because they've been taught not to see you. Otamu Chan and Edmund Richardson met in San Quentin prison. Chan was released this fall, but Richardson is still inside and still recovering from COVID-19 as a so-called long hauler without being able to see his best friend. It's hard to take on the weight of the world alone, but with you, everything was bearable. I am truly happy your home where you belong. It's an intimate look at the bond between two men from KALW's Uncuffed podcast. That's this week on the California Report magazine. Find the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And that's the California Report for Friday, February 26th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. Our great engineers are Katie McMurrin and Danny Bringer with assistance from Seal Muller. Our equally great producers are Mary Franklin Harvin and Keith Mizuguchi. Our senior editor is Angela Corral. Our director of news is Vinnie Tong. Our executive editor is Ethan Lindsay. And our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. Remember to check out our own website and podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. We have an earlier interview up with a black business owner who reflects on the Buy Black campaign of last year and whatever happened to it. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. Thanks so much for listening and have a great day and weekend. In your weekend weather forecast for Nevada City and Grass Valley, clear tonight with an overnight low of 38 degrees. Sunny Saturday with a high in the mid-50s and a low in the high 30s. A similar dry weather pattern is expected to persist through most of next week. The next precipitation in the forecast is for the end of the coming week. Tonight in Truckee, mainly clear skies with a low of 13 degrees. Sunny skies in Truckee Saturday with a high of 35 degrees and a low of 13. A similar weather pattern will continue for most of the next week. In Sacramento, mostly clear tonight with an overnight low of 42 degrees, sunny Saturday with a high of 65 and winds of 15 to 25 miles per hour, with occasional gusts over 40 miles per hour. The rest of the coming week in Sacramento is forecast to be sunny, with highs near 70 degrees and lows around 40, with showers possibly moving in Friday. New COVID-19 vaccination appointments for the Nevada County Public Health Department's Whispering Pines Clinic in Grass Valley were scheduled to become available today at noon on the state's MyTurn website. MyTurn.ca.gov is the website where Californians can find out if they're eligible for COVID-19 vaccination, schedule appointments, and sign up for notifications. Nevada County will continue to post new appointment availability for the Whispering Pines Clinic at noon on Fridays. The county continues to put out the message that vaccine supply remains limited. According to the State Department of Health, almost 22,000 county residents have received at least one dose of the vaccine. Thursday, the county's public health REACH team vaccinated residents of the Bret Hart Retirement Inn in downtown Grass Valley. 
The REACH team visits prioritized communities to provide on-site vaccinations for residents. A vaccine standby list that opened earlier this week quickly reached capacity and is now closed. At UBINET's weekly Vaccinate Nevada County webinar on Thursday, Director of Public Health Jill Blake said that although the list was originally announced to have a capacity of 500 people, it was kept open until it reached 1,200. At a media event today in Fresno, Governor Gavin Newsom said that allocations of vaccines are increasing every week. He said he expects more than 380,000 doses of the new Johnson & Johnson vaccine to arrive in the state every week for the next three weeks. He also said that, starting Monday, the state will start giving counties three weeks' notice of vaccine allocation totals instead of the current two weeks' notice. He also noted that in-state cases of COVID-19 had fallen from 17,000 cases one month ago to about 5,400 today. Nevada County COVID-19 cases climbed by 7 on Thursday. NID's Foothill Campgrounds will reopen for winter camping starting Monday. The campgrounds at Scott's Flat Reservoir as well as at Long Ravine and Orchard Springs at Rollins Reservoir will be open on a first-come, first-served basis. The regional coronavirus stay-at-home order was lifted on January 12th, but NID recreation personnel decided to remain closed for a little longer just in case another shutdown occurred, according to recreation manager Monica Reyes. She said, since this has not happened, we feel confident about reopening at this time. At 6.30 p.m. today, the Peace and Justice Center of Nevada County invites concerned citizens to a virtual community forum to discuss the February 4th officer-involved killing of Sage Crawford in Alta Sierra. The forum will also address racism in Nevada County, and there will be discussion of creating a Citizens Oversight Committee regarding local law enforcement practices. The event begins at 6.30 p.m., Email ncpeaceandjustice at gmail.com for an invitation. Tonight, the Center for the Arts in Grass Valley will present the Fula Brothers live from the Center at 7 p.m. The Fula Brothers, a favorite among California World Fest fans, will bring West African grooves to this live broadcast streaming from the Center stage. Together, Mamadou Sidibe and Walter Strauss combine music of the West African hunter's harp, guitar, drums, and vocals. Sidibe is a master player of the Kamala Ngone, the eight-stringed hunter's harp. Strauss is a finger-style guitarist who draws on American roots, jazz, and classical traditions. Information is available online at thecenterforthearts.org or by calling 530-274-838. Next up, Paul Emery in conversation with economist Gary Zimmerman about prospects for the economic recovery. The Global Economic Report with Gary Zimmerman is sponsored by Rick Kalb, Wealth Management Advisor with Northwestern Mutual since 1983 on Spring Street, Nevada City, also at rickkalb.com. Well, welcome, Gary. Uh, You know, I have some questions for you about the economy 
Are you ready? <laughs> well, thank you, Paul. I hope so. <laughs> it's good to be back. Um, and the economy is in the news with, you know, employment numbers, inflation, interest rates, Fed decisions are still, you know, making news. Uh, you know, and that's important. We've got some, you know, relatively maybe a little better mixed uh, news on some of the economic indicators. Um, the inflation numbers and employment numbers, however, are still well below what the Fed would like to see them at. And that, you know, that leads the Fed to uh, recommending or sticking with an, an easy or more stimulative monetary policy. So, Gary, when the Fed policy makers met uh, at the end of January, uh, they didn't make any new or major changes, as I understand it, in interest rates or monetary policy. Uh, how would you characterize monetary policy today? Is it helping the economy, neutral, or slowing the economy? The Fed's January decision really made no significant changes to monetary or interest rate policy. And I would characterize the existing policy as being very supportive of helping the U.S. economy recover from the serious and deep 2020 pandemic recession. Um, you know, I think the uh, as, as Chair Powell noted in his testimony before the Senate Banking Committee this week, the economic outlook remains highly uncertain you now when the inflation numbers are are soft in part because the pandemic has slowed the economy and the labor markets need help so you know this is an appropriate fed policy it's a sound i would i would say it's a sound decision the fed continues to help the economy by keeping the short term overnight interbank it's called the federal funds target interest rate at nearly zero and then this you know is an interest rate that's going to help the economy expand um, low interest rates help um, so that that's good fed is also continuing to expand its balance sheet or its assets you know, some refer to this as quantitative easing or qe and the fed is buying 120 billion in bonds every month mostly u.s treasury securities um, and these asset purchases you know again put downward pressure on interest rates in general and help stabilize the financial markets and so that also helps so no change here you know continues fed policies that are designed to help the the economy and have you know are supporting a recovery. Well, Gary, the labor market data for the last couple of months uh, doesn't look too good. Uh, <laughs> what are your thoughts on the higher numbers of people losing their jobs and the rather poor statistics on payroll jobs? Oh, Paul, I completely agree. The labor markets are numbers or indicators are still pretty depressed or depressing. Um, too many workers are being laid off from their jobs and the total number of payroll jobs, you know, actually declined in December and the increase in January was was quite small. We're still down about 10 million jobs from the pre-pandemic peak about a year ago. So, you know, the economy has a, a long way to go to a full recovery, um, you know, and about half of that 10 million workers who've been unemployed may have actually been left the labor force, stopped looking for jobs. Um, as Fed Governor uh, Brainerd noted this week, you know, if they hadn't, the unemployment rate wouldn't be 6.3%. Uh, it might be closer to 10%. Um, and, and if these folks stay out of the labor market for, for too long, uh, the likelihood that they become permanently unemployed um, is a real problem. And that's, you know, again, a, a critical reason for doing a, another large economic relief package and, and doing it now before they are out of the labor force too long, lose their skills and find it difficult to come back. Gary, do you have an estimate of how many jobs the U.S. economy would normally generate in a month, you know, assuming the economy was doing well and expanding? 
Good question, Paul. Um, yeah, the economy averaged adding about 200,000 new jobs, payroll jobs a month in, in recent uh, economic recoveries, you know, in the 2000s. Um, so in December, the economy actually lost 227,000 jobs. That's a, a big red flag. And in January, it only added 49,000 jobs. So, you know, it's clear that the labor market weakness and recently has been, you know, hurt by COVID, the resurgence of COVID and the efforts to fight the pandemic. So, you know, at this slow rate of adding jobs and even, you know, losing jobs in recent months, it could take years for the economy to get back to the full employment. And if we have lots of workers who just leave the labor force and never come back, you know, the economy is going to grow more slowly and in the future it will be smaller and that will affect all of us. Even if we add 200,000 jobs a month, it's still going to take us a little over four years to add back, you know, 10 million jobs that we've lost in 2020. So that's this is not a good situation. Gary, we're just about out of time. But one last question. We recently got a new estimate for gross domestic product for the last three months of 2020 and for the year as a whole. How do you interpret these statistics? Yes, Paul. Into January, the Bureau of Economic Analysis released their advanced real GDP estimate for the last quarter of 2020. Uh, this was a preliminary number. It'll be revised over the next months as additional data and, and revised data can be incorporated into the estimates of GDP or economic output for the quarter and, and for the year. I'll also be watching this week when the first revision or update of the those GDP numbers comes out to see how it might be changing, whether it gets revised up or down or, or stays about the same. For the year as a whole, those numbers show that the economy, uh, economy's output declined about two and a half percent in 2020. That's a very, that's a big recession. Um, so we're still far below potential. Okay, Gary, thank you so much. And we'll check in in a couple of weeks and see what things look like then. Okay, thank you, Paul. Gary Zimmerman is a retired senior economist for the Federal Reserve in San Francisco and currently is a visiting professor at the Vienna University of Economics and Business in Austria, where he teaches courses in economics and finance. Tonight, the KVMR Evening News welcomes Chaplain Norris Burks with a commentary about spirituality in everyday life. Hi, this is Chaplain Norris Burks bringing to you my second version of spirituality in everyday life. As 2020 came to a close, my brother Milton, the one I like to call Brother Man, died of COVID. Now, many folks have offered their condolences, but the most common question I'm asked is, well, did he have any pre-existing conditions? The question suggests they dispute the COVID death numbers, because those numbers include people with conditions like my brother's. It's as if they're saying they don't believe my brother's death counted just because he had high blood pressure or diabetes. If you're among those who hold such beliefs, then you may share my brother's most deadly comorbidity, gullibility. For you see, my brother believed all the social media garbage. He followed the anti-maskers, anti-vaxxers, anti-science, flat-earther folks who posted, reposted, and emailed everyone who dared click a link. As a result, doctors labeled him non-compliant. That was a medical term, meaning that he refused to take his insulin, his blood pressure pills, or other medications. But I gained a lot of hope on Christmas of 2019 when I moved him to a veteran's home with their state-of-the-art, round-the-clock attention. I expected him to live another 10 to 15 years. But like many care facilities, they couldn't keep COVID completely at bay. And one afternoon, I was called from the emergency room in the hospital. 
They're going to say that I have COVID, my brother said, but they want to do that just because that means more money for them. Echoing much of the social media nonsense. Don't let them stick a breathing tube down my throat, he said. I know I don't want this. I said, okay, I'll do all I can. But yet, hours later, he reversed his long-sworn position. That's because if you ask a person who can't breathe, can we put you on a respirator, he's going to say, hell yes. Melton said yes, and that was the last time I heard him speak. So the week before Christmas, a palliative care nurse called to tell me there was nothing else to do. Was I willing to remove him from life support? I gave my permission, and he died two hours later. So I ask again, does my brother's death count? After all, for years he was non-compliant, so perhaps the anti-science community is right. Brother man didn't die of COVID at all. He died of his comorbidities. But those comorbidities were more than physical. They were spiritual. They're known by many names, such as denial, gullibility, ignorance, and hate. COVID is now determined to have killed millions. But it didn't have to be this bad. It could have been so different without these anti-science deceptions. Those lies killed my brother, not COVID. Now, as long as I remain on this earth, I will demand that my brother Milton's death be counted and his life always remembered. Thank you for joining me. The views expressed on this show are those of the speakers only and are not necessarily those of KVMR, our board, staff, volunteers, or contributors. That's our newscast. Coming up next at 6.30, the California Report marks the loss of literary giant Lawrence Ferlinghetti, who died this week at the age of 101. And at 7 p.m., it's Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. You've been listening to the KVMR Evening News on KVMR in Nevada City. Your opinion is important to us, so don't forget to fill out our listener survey. You can find it online at kvmr.org slash survey. The KVMR Evening News is produced by KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza and airs at 6 p.m. every Monday through Friday. If you have an opinion you'd like to share, we invite you to submit a commentary to news at kvmr.org. Commentary guidelines can be found at kvmr.org under the News section. Have a great weekend.